from 2012 to 2022 was that the product managers started rebelling against product manager as CEO of the product, right? I've seen Justin Welch talks about a lot of content system, right? And, uh, you know, even Lenny talks about a content process and all of that stuff. So what's your process, right? Have you adapted it from somebody or you have you created your own system for creating content on a regular basis? The thing is that to really get newsletter subscribers, you also need to have an opinion. You have to have some point of view. People want have to want to read you, listen to you, because the the company profile, the how X does product, all of that is highly replicable. So what are your predictions for the next big revolution in the product management. You go from needing to influence like designers and engineers at your level to influencing a whole bunch of cross-functional leaders above your level. And at first it's kind of scary. What advice would you give, especially for your audience to excel in product management? Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to our podcast, uh, Everything Product. So we talk about uh, product management uh, concepts and the latest technology here. So I'm Sid Saladi. Hey, I'm Srinath. We just uh, completed recording a podcast session with Akash Gupta. So Akash Gupta is the number one influencer on in the product management space. He has close to 200,000 followers on LinkedIn and 100,000 subscribers on Substack and many more paid subscribers. So we talked about some of his strategies of growing in LinkedIn and also Substack. And we went into uh, details of some of the inflection points which accelerated his growth towards the numbers. And we also talked about what kind of a content management system does he follow and who is it inspired from. Later, we went into some of the details of landing a product management job in this brutal market. And we talked about the future of product management. For anybody who wants to grow as an influencer in LinkedIn or Substack, you know, um, or anybody who wants to land a product management job in this market, please watch this podcast till then. Thank you. Awesome. So today I'm thrilled to welcome our guest Akash Gupta. So I've been following Akash Gupta since he uh, had uh, close to 10,000 followers on LinkedIn and 3,000 on Substack. And now he's close to 100,000 on Substack and 200,000 on LinkedIn. So welcome to the uh, pod, Akash, and we are privileged. Can you do a quick introduction about yourself? Yeah, of course. And I've been following you for quite some time too. So it's mutual. Uh, after um, spending time at Google as a product manager, rising as a product leader to a VP of product at Apollo.io most recently, I uh, took the plunge last year to late last year, really. So it's pretty recent. Uh, go into content full time and I've been working on my paid newsletter. So that's kind of my 100% of my focus. And I'm really excited to just uh, help as many PMs as possible, really. Uh, aspiring PMs as well, but primarily PMs and product leaders. Awesome. You know, I know the product field has been evolving and it's getting even complex and more broader as you go. That's a big challenge. Uh, so, um, I know as your uh, newsletter is called Product Growth, uh, you know, why don't we start with that, right? So... Uh, can you walk us through your newsletter journey and, you know, your growth or inflection points through the newsletter journey? 
Yeah, hundred percent. So I'd put it, break it up into like five or six chapters. The first chapter is really, you know, being bored in COVID, <laughs> like a lot of people, uh, having more time, not traveling as much, seeing my friends less, and so maybe like sort of channeling what we used to do at the office at Epic Games, which was talk about the gaming industry. I started writing about the gaming industry online, and it was awesome because. I didn't realize how much of my network was actually in the gaming industry. My former debate partner from college messaged me. He actually was a product manager working on Call of Duty. I was working on Fortnite. So we had a lot of things to share that were pretty helpful for each other. And this made me realize, and I had this aha moment that, gosh, like writing online is really a, increasing your surface area for luck your surface area for serendipity. People, when you put your message out there, they can find you, discover you, learn more about you than purely what's going on within your company. So that was kind of like the first chapter. For me, the second chapter was finding my voice online. So I started to write not just about gaming industry, but about what I was doing as a product manager or how what things I saw within technology. And I tried out different types of writing. Some of my articles were 500 words, some were 5,000. I even tried some 15,000 word articles. So I was trying different things and I started to find my voice. And as I was finding my voice, I think the YouTube algorithm, the AI caught on. So it realized that I was writing, especially probably the way I was searching YouTube. Like for one week, I would just search about Supercell. And then the next week, I would just search about some other topic that I was writing about. So it showed these videos from David Perel, who created Rite of Passage. And so this was kind of the end of my second chapter where I took Rite of Passage. And uh, kind of the third chapter is like the Rite of Passage chapter where a lot of the key content there, I don't want to like give away all of the things, but in terms of things he talks about publicly, one of the most important things is building your personal monopoly. And so what he says is that you don't want to compete with the billions of other writers on the internet. You want to write about kind of what's within your specific area of expertise. And so for me, having been almost 15 years in the field of product growth, that was obviously kind of my area. And then if you further think about it, very few people have been in B2C and B2B. A lot of people who are really well known within product growth, they often only write about one or the other. So how can I kind of bridge the gap? Um, and so the final element, as I mentioned, was I was a debater. So I'm, I'm pretty like used to research and like putting together, let's say like 50 sources for an article every week. So that's how I found my voice is like these deeper dives, like four or 5,000 words writing about technology, product management, and growth. And so that's when the product growth newsletter was born. And so in kind of my fourth chapter now, uh, this was like the growth, like learning how to become a newsletter writer, posting online, understanding the sources of growth, which for me, LinkedIn and X were the two big sources of growth. So not really understanding those channels, trying to get to nearly a daily posting habit, um, joining communities uh, of like-minded peers who are also doing the similar things so that we can talk and accelerate our learning curves. And then kind of the fifth chapter is, as I was progressing in jobs from Epic Games to Affirm to Apollo.io, the newsletter really started to take off. And one of my friends suggested that I create a paid newsletter. And so I did do that and the product market fit was like instantaneous. Like the growth was really fast. The retention was really strong. 
And so that kind of led to my sixth and final chapter, which is now going full time on this paid newsletter um, to really see how far I can take it. Uh, if you look at the biggest paid newsletters, like they have 25,000, 35,000 paid subscribers. So that's kind of my goal. Awesome. Awesome. You know, it, it's not easy to create content every day and also on a you know regular basis for so long, right? So you have been doing that. So I would say, right, like what were some inflection points? You, you mentioned X and uh, LinkedIn as some of the sources for your growth, right? Were there any specific in inflection points or growth strategies that rocketed some of your growth in your newsletter? Oh, interesting. Um so I had different goals in my phases in my career. Like I would say like my first phase, like it was like I was interested in followers on LinkedIn and X. In my second phase, I was interested in free email subscribers to the newsletter. In this third phase, I'm interested in paid subscribers. So what succeeds for those three things is wildly different. So if you look at like inflection points for followers, like as soon as I started writing about technology instead of just product management, my followers blew up like crazy. So I wrote um, a lot about AI. I wrote about uh, how Figma grow, grew, how, why Netflix stock went down 70%. All of those posts got like millions of impressions. So anytime I would say like my follower rate is very correlated with impressions. So that's what grew, increased impressions. Then what grew email subscribers, free email subscribers in that second phase was writing like insightful content about product management. And so I realized, oh my gosh, like clearly there's this hunger for product management content. And then finally, like what has been an inflection point for the paid newsletter is doing a lot of deep dives on really practical things. So I like to think about the job to be done framework for every article. I like to identify a very specific audience. So I say either this is product leader, senior product manager, or aspiring PM. And then I say like, either this is gonna help you in the interview, this is gonna help you with your next feature, this is gonna help you with your next interview, customer interview, this is gonna help you with your next strategy. I come up with some job to be done and then I write a deep dive on it. And I try to publish those regularly. So those have been the major inflection points for me. Awesome. And I love the way which you put it, right? Sometimes people think there's a blanket approach of doing things, but it changes by the goal and you have to tweak the content on, you know, by what the goals are and the different platform or, you know, which, what you're aspiring to. Awesome. Yeah. Also, Akash, I had a question. I know, you know, you bring up some great points, especially on the consistency. I mean, targeting your the right audience and all that stuff and consistency, which are very important, right? I was curious that, what are some of some like maybe the marketing strategies that really helped you to grow your uh, the user base from 10k to now close to 200k which is not easy and also with that the stickiness right like we may create content there are subscribers but not not everyone may be reading through it but in your case like stickiness is seems to also be pretty high yeah. Um, so I guess we're talking really about phase two in terms of 10 to 100K. That would be like my free email newsletter subscribers. So let's deep dive into those and like the marketing strategies. So uh, the most important sort of marketing strategy is the one that people like to make the most fun of. But 
at the end of every single social post, I plug my newsletter. So that's really important. A lot of people, like, they're kind of scared. They're like, you know what? I'm going to become the subject of these memes because at the end of every post, I'm saying, hey, if you like this, you'll love my newsletter. But I was kind of unashamed in this. And I have to be honest, like, sometimes, like, LinkedIn algorithm loves me. Like, I'm just getting crazy impressions. Like, at this day that I'm speaking to you right now, it doesn't love me. So I'm so happy that I have taken those people as newsletter subscribers because then I can actually reach out to all 90,000 of them. Right now, my yesterday's post, it showed it to 25,000 people, right? So then those other 65,000 people, they didn't see the, the content that I wrote. And so I, I really got motivated by like, understanding that the algorithm will give it to you, but it might also take it away from you. And so you want to secure that in the form of an email list. And, you know, maybe you will be the subject of some memes. So that's probably like my first and most important strategy is like all of my subscribers have come from X and LinkedIn when I just put after the post subscribe. So the second most important thing then is for me, like I mentioned the type of content that those posts are. So if you're going to write like blanket technology content, like a lot of people, you know, you'll see they'll get like thousands of likes on every single post, but they're basically writing tech stories. How Zero Da became a $10 billion company, how Notion became a $10 billion company, how Miro grows, how Linear builds product, whatever all these things are, these research pieces, they're super valuable content to have in the world. I'm so happy that these creators are making them. And I personally have made a bunch of them that they do take a lot of time. The thing is that to really get newsletter subscribers, you also need to have an opinion. You have to have some point of view. People want have to want to read you, listen to you, because the the company profile, the how X does product, all of that is highly replicable. So in fact, like Lenny really made the how X does product huge, right? And he's done an amazing job with that. But now you look at every other creator is also copying him and doing the exact same thing. So now then it's like, well, how do you, what, does it matter that Lenny asked the questions? Maybe a little bit, but also when he puts on his spice on its own on top of it, like he challenges the author because of his point of view or something, that's when it really resonates. So that's kind of the second thing is I try to bring in my voice or my perspective. And I feel like a lot of content creators, they get stuck in like becoming journalists. But for me, my sort of the way I talk to people, I always try to add in like, here's what I researched, but here's what I did. And here's what I'm skeptical about. So that's probably my second strategy is like having a voice. And also my third strategy is then having like a focused content. So one of the big mistakes I used to make that led to a lot of unsubscribes is I used to talk about all sorts of different topics. So I would maybe talk about, I, I, literally, I literally wrote a piece about Tom Brady, who is an American football quarterback. And like, that's a great mm -hmm. example of just like going a little bit too far out. So you do have to somewhat stick to your niche. Um, I mentioned I used to write a lot about AI that really increased my X followers. So if you notice, like when I go from like 20,000 to 100,000 on X, I was writing about AI. So during that period, a lot of my product manager subscribers unsubscribed. <laughs> so then I realized like, okay, I need to talk about product management. Um, so there is a little bit of that too. So I would say those are my three most important strategies. Awesome. And I actually picked one of that. <laughs> so I, I have for my LinkedIn post, I have my subscribe this at the end of the post. So I, I picked it up from you. <laughs> 
as i was doing my substack there are a lot of question posts which you do right and there are some of my uh, i like uh, some of them some of my fa- are my favorites like for you right if you look at all the uh, newsletters which you have written what what is your top top uh, newsletter my favorite newsletter well right third phase in my current phase of life it's about paid subscribers so um like my favorite posts are like the ones that have driven the most paid subscriptions um okay. so uh like some my one of my most famous posts is like the ultimate guide to onboarding I think what basically yeah. happened is that uh this kind of went viral within like various companies. So what would happen is I'd have like a paid subscriber from Meta and then they would forward it to like some other PMs within Meta and then that day I would see like more paid subscribers coming from there because Meta has a learning and development budget and it's big budget too. So everybody can afford a $150 subscription. So it's like nothing to them. Also most Meta PMs make like $500,000. So they can also pay out of the pocket if they've already used up their learning and development budget. So for me writing more pieces like that that can potentially go viral within these big tech companies within learning development budgets is my number one goal. So I'm constantly looking at what posts drove the most paid subscriptions and I'm rereading them, rereading them, figuring out what was kind of the success for that and I'm writing more. So the ultimate guide to onboarding was really good, so then I did ultimate guide to activation, ultimate guide to expansion. Um and I'm currently going to publish in a couple days a new ultimate guide. So that's how I'm thinking about it. Awesome. Yeah, we'll also mention that in the description so anybody who wants to check it out can go in and check it out in the description section uh these posts. So uh normally right when you have like you no know, such a continuous content process and all of that stuff right like, I tend to see a lot of these content creators have an engine or a process which they you know create a system right which they go through I I've, I've seen Justin Welch is talks about a lot of content system right and uh, you know even Lenny talks about a content process and all of that stuff so what's your process right have you adapted it from somebody or you have you created your own system for creating content on a regular basis yeah those are two of the people honestly that i have taken my system from <laughs> lenny and justin they are the best right so you have to study them so like the most amazing thing about lenny is he's never stressed out he's constantly working on like four or five posts in advance so that's one of the elements that i've been taking the really interesting thing about justin is that he like repurposes a lot of content so he'll write like a newsletter and then he'll turn that into several threads and he'll turn those into several tweets and then he'll turn those into several instagrams and tiktoks etc so i've also taken those components so basically like the two most important elements that i've learned from them is like reduce stress by planning ahead and then create systems to propagate your content based on a source your source being your deep newsletter article because writing is really how you do like creative thinking in my field like basically if i am not saying something original that i'm barely adding anything right so i need to say something original so i can i have to do that original thinking when i'm like writing this newsletter so i tend to write the newsletter basically in the day that's like my focused thinking time so i'm like working on that from like 9 to 5 and then like i need to turn that into a bunch of other social media content for marketing because as a solopreneur i'm building the product which is the newsletter and doing the marketing so for the marketing that i'm taking that i'm extracting those key insights from the deep newsletter and i'm creating all of the social media assets that you see coming up with a content different types of content and engaging audiences is not easy 
um so do you follow any specific content strategy like finding the latest trends out there and all the stuff like and probably uh, repurposing your content to meet that needs yeah so um i do a lot of things that people probably do um like i i save a lot of linkedin posts and then i review those linkedin posts on a really regular basis I bookmark a lot of tweets and I review a lot of those tweets. And then I take my favorite ones when I'm reviewing them. I put them into an Apple note and then I review that Apple note. Then I have another Apple note, which is like my top newsletter ideas. And then I, that is in ranked order. And so then as I'm coming up on my next newsletter idea, I just take it from the top of that list. And that's how I work on like several newsletter issues for the next few issues. But then I also inject some timeliness. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of in a media company at this point, so I do have to talk about trends. So occasionally, like some trendy topic will come up. So yesterday, I posted about Carta and the disastrous PR that they've had in the last day. That I was originally actually not going to write about Carta. I had a, another topic on how to build a product strategy, but I just I'm going to move that to like a few days from now because the Carta topic was super timely. But other than that, it's kind of like this getting inspired by my swipe files, which are my saved LinkedIn posts and my bookmark tweets. Um, just having a North Star because I've been writing daily content for almost like two and a half years now. Um, and then just going after my stack rank top ideas. What challenges did you come across when, like, for example, as a part of this process, what challenges do you generally probably face and how did you overcome that? Like growing is not easy. Um, and when you basically post the content, getting that stickiness is not easy as well. Like what are like maybe top three challenges you faced as a content creator? And how did you overcome that? Uh, the three biggest challenges I faced as a content creator. So the first one is uh, dealing with hate. Uh, people on Reddit especially can be pretty brutal, which is like just maybe they don't realize that like we're humans or that we do read these messages. But sometimes like people will say something about my writing, especially if it has done well, right? So if I write a Twitter thread that suddenly gets 40 million impressions, then it definitely is going to show up on Reddit. And so then I'm going to get to hear like, this guy is a techie bro and he doesn't understand what the reality on the ground is in marketing movies or something like that, they might say. Like that was my thread on Barbie, Barbie marketing that people started talking about. Or I might write about like life advice and then on the product management subreddit, it might come up like, why is he telling me, you know, to go to bed on time? Like this is a product manager influencer. He's not a lifestyle influencer. So people say these like negative things and you kind of feel bad because especially for me, like none of my content is just I'm just sitting on the toilet and it took me 10 minutes. All my content, it took hours. I planned the topic days in advance on my list. Then I read articles on it. Then I wrote my own point of view. Then I edited it. Then I finally like nervously hit post, right? So, so I feel like sometimes people say these negative things about content and that is a huge challenge for me as a creator. And I think every creator is the hate. And I read every single comment I respond to almost every comment I can on LinkedIn, YouTube, and X. So that has been one area um, that has been a consistent challenge for me. And in terms of how I deal with it, there's a couple of things I do. So number one, 
is that I think all of those comments have probably been right. <laughs> so I just try to accept the feedback a lot of the times. Like, you know what? Like, it was so annoying to them that they had to say something about it. So maybe I can learn something about this. Like, you know, how can I learn about this and go forward? And so like, you see, like, I don't write about like going to bed on time anymore. Like I kind of stay in my lane of product growth a little bit more. So there's, there's something there to like the advice too, or like the criticism. And so I try to listen to the criticism. The second thing is that I try to like stick to the positive, like, if I have suddenly reached 40 million people, I can't even imagine another time in history when I could have reached 40 million people just based on something that I spent three hours writing. So it's awesome. Like, you know, like something good did happen. So I try to like flip it to the bright side. And then the third thing I try to do is like, just keep moving on to the next one. So I try to time box the amount of time I'm like reading and responding to comments. Like usually I'll do that for like maybe like a half an hour a day, but I'm writing my other piece of content for 11. 12 hours a day. So I just don't give myself enough mental space to like overdwell. Um, but it's, it's very hard to deal with that. Um, second challenge for me is like how niche versus broad should my content be? So, um, you know, we all, at least who are content creators, I think like once we post something, we want to look at like how it's doing. So like, you know, I'll post something and then like an hour or two later, I'll look at it and it's like, oh man, this is like 30% less impressions and likes than I get per normal post. That makes me feel bad. And inherently, like those tend to be the more niche topics. But the interesting thing is that for me, for my paid newsletters, especially now, niche topics actually drive better paid newsletter subscription and retention, even though they drive worse followers and engagement. So I have this kind of duality where I could go niche versus broad. I could rank really highly on like social media influencer list. I could have like a hundred million impressions a month, or I could just make a ton of money with my newsletter. So these are like two different areas, niche versus broad that I could think about. And I, you know, for me, it's like money matters way more. So like I've been going more niche over time, but then like the algorithm starts to hate me. And so then I'm like, okay, wait, I need to infuse some mix of broad. And so like a lot of people talk about how like you might want to have like content lanes. And so that's how I've been thinking about it. So my current content solution lane is like, I'll have 20% of my posts be broad. So like one in five, like I'm going to go to like, I'm going to write about Carta and what's happening with the tech news there. But then like for my next post is going to be like super deep product management, like how you improve engagement with these power users, you know, something like just niche and really useful for people. And so that's kind of the second challenge and how I'm trying to address it, although I don't have the right answer. And then the third challenge for me is like the, just this sort of um, this boogeyman of the algorithm, right? So I just had mentioned earlier, like maybe LinkedIn's algorithm doesn't really like me. Even me reacting to that now, I'm saying like, I probably am not thinking about that the right way. Like anytime I, someone, I don't know who said this, someone very smart said this, maybe like Jasmine Ellis, but like anytime you see the word algorithm, replace it with audience. Oh, you know who said this? I think Mr. Beast actually said this. <laughs> so the famous YouTuber. So like, 
I keep thinking like, oh, the algorithm, but it's it's probably the audience. It's probably something to do with my own content, right? So like there are real people on the other side of that algorithm. Usually on LinkedIn, it's looking at dwell time. On X, it's basically looking at how sticky you make X for that user. So it's just, it's obvious what those algorithms are optimizing for. And behind that is just real people. And so the solution for me has been to, to really figure out what metrics I care about if I don't care as much about follower growth and likes and social media likes, and I care more about paid newsletter subscriptions and retention, then use that as my barometer instead of whatever else I was looking at. And so for me, like just had the best newsletter month I've ever had. And so like, even though my social media impressions are down like one tenth from what they might've been a year ago, that's good for me. And I'm just going to continue on that. Yeah, awesome. one of the uh, things which I really like when you said this, the, not everyone takes that uh, user feedback or customer feedback, uh, turns that into an opportunity. And I think some people may uh, like act like defense, right? So, and also you bring up a good point, like both don't go hand in hand, uh, niche versus broad. And, uh, and great to hear that you were able to identify that difference and <laughs> cater your content accordingly. So let's maybe switch gears and move into product managers, project management, right? Which is your strength. So Akash, <laughs> I know uh, I, I like all your posts on, I know the different skills product manager needs as they grow up, how do they, uh, you know, inculcate different skills and learn different skills kind of thing. So what were the key skills that helped you navigate your product management career ladder? So the three skills that I talk about are in three different buckets. The first skill is self-awareness. And this is like probably my superpower really as it related to my product management career was understanding what I'm good at and what I'm not so good at. And this is particularly important once you start to have like a team. So I would say that as a product manager, it's kind of hard to be bad at roadmaps or bad at PRDs. But as a product leader... Once you get to that level, actually, you might say, like, as a product leader, I'm not the best at PRDs. Or as a product leader, compared to other product leaders, you know, my strategy is like a 7 out of 10, whatever it might be. So for me, like, self-awareness-wise, like, politics was definitely an area that for me, for a part of my, my early part of my product leader career especially, I was a weakness in it. So it being a weakness meant that a i talked to my manager every single one on one about it b i asked for my regular colleagues like my design and engineering counterpart for feedback on it c i spent extra time on it and so all those things put together really helped me kind of overcome that weakness and then i relied on my superpower so i'll talk about that in kind of area 3 of what drove it but for now, like, let's focus on self-awareness, like understanding your weaknesses and doubling down on them and then understanding your superpowers and like really using those for success. So that, that level of self-awareness and some of the tactics that I would give people for being self-aware is one, don't trust any of the first feedback someone gives you. You need to ask them like, what feedback do you have for me? Oh, and what else? And what else? And what else? And then like on that fourth, what else? Then maybe you're getting the truth, right? Like, you know, people are sugarcoating stuff like early on. And so for colleagues, especially, we're talking about like somebody who you have in meetings every single day, like they don't want to suddenly make you feel bad for the day. So I will just keep asking them about feedback. And the second thing is like, ask them to quantify it. So I, I asked my design counterpart, like on a scale of one to 10, like 
did I convince the executives in that product review? And like, you know, like they had just given me a bunch of nice feedback and then they gave me a seven. And I was like, okay, well, what would make that a 10? Like, can you please tell me what would make that a 10? So sometimes you really need to extract the information from people. Nobody, especially if you're doing a good job, which generally I was, but I want to do an excellent job. People aren't going to just give you the feedback because they just want you to continue doing a good job. They've worked with PMs and product leaders who have done a bad or a mediocre job. Um, the second thing for me is like, I obsessively studied technology. So I find that a lot of product managers, especially as they get more senior in their career, maybe they become like a B2B product-led growth product manager. Oh my gosh, they're going to be the next Elena Verna. They're just amazing, right? So they know everything about uh, Notion and Miro and all the product-led growth companies. And then if you ask them, oh, how does this sales-led company do it? They have no clue. Or if you ask them, like, how does uh, this consumer company do it? They have no clue, right? So they don't have as much of a broad tech following. They're just following their specific function, their specific niche, whatever it might be. For me, I tend to have this broader lens. And why I think this is important is a lot of the product features I built were actually inspired that way. So um, at Apollo, we wrote the AI email assistant, one of the most successful features. And that was obviously inspired by what we were learning with ChatGPT and B2C consumer applications. At Fortnite, we released all these social functionalities that were inspired by things I actually worked on in B2B while I was at Google. So there's all sorts of these crossover features that I was introducing essentially to my company or my sub-function that I was in at the time from prior or other sub-functions or studies that I was doing. So some tactical things I'd recommend to people is like not get too siloed in their political product management career and to read broadly. So like definitely subscribe to awesome things like the information, like Stratechery, like those proprietary news sources are actually like a way for you to have alpha in your career by like understanding things that other people don't pay for and understand. So I'm a high advocate of things like that. And then my third superpower, like strength that really helped me rise to VP of product. And this is probably kind of like in life. This is really a life skill, but it translates to product management is I just, I have a pretty good idea of what we need to do, <laughs> which is, which is hard to like say specifically, but it's like at a specific time also as a content creator, I just know what I need to be working on. Or when I was in college, I just knew like what I needed to be studying. So like all of these different things really helped me throughout my life of like always figuring out that prioritization, like in the back of my mind. And what this meant is that as a product leader or as a product manager, but mostly as a product leader, if we're talking about VP of product, like most people get stuck at like group product manager, director of product. The way to jump to VP of product is to really be able to like put your foot in the ground, argue with the CEO, argue with the other VPs, argue with the other directors of product, argue with the other PMs and designers and engineers. No, we don't need to do that. I know your idea is great, but this idea is even better, right? And then after you argue with them, if you want to stay at the company for any length of time, you have to have been right. So you have to have been proven right multiple times over and over to continue to develop that credibility. And so most of the times that I stuck my foot in the ground on these issues, I turned out to be right. 
And so having this ability to really prioritize like what's the most important thing was my superpower. And so I really leaned into this. Like if I wasn't as good at politics, I wanted to make sure everybody knew that the decisions I was making were having a huge impact. I wanted people to know the facts. Like this is the metric. These were my OKRs. Every single OKR was exceeded by 50%. Like throughout my career, there was almost never like a time when like my personal OKRs were not exceeded. And that's because I knew what I needed to do to make that impact. So that's been my strength. Awesome. I think you kind of touched on a bit. I mean, I'm growing from an individual product, uh, IC contribution to product leader, right? How did your roles and responsibilities evolve for during this ladder? Product managers are usually good, uh, like individual contributors. But as they come up the ladder, that's where I think, uh, I mean, they struggle. Just curious. Yeah, so I feel like at each stage of my product management career, there were like so many different ways the roles and responsibilities change. Like from product manager, senior product manager, lead product manager, group product manager, director, VP, like these are all the steps that I had to take in my career. Each one, it was so different. Like if you think about product manager, in reality, like I thought that I was coming up with my own feature ideas, but basically like, you know, the execs and managers already, everybody already knew what features we needed to build. Where I added the most value when I look back is an execution in going to those daily standups with engineers, in unblocking engineers, in having that PRD that really consolidated what all the executives actually wanted with what the user research actually stated, with what the data actually stated in a way that engineers and designers could then pick up and easily work on, giving the QA feedback after engineers have actually made it. Like those were the actual areas I added real value as a product manager. And so if you think about it, my aperture was essentially like three months. That's my aperture and my skill set. It's like after things have already been decided, like how do we make sure this final leg of execution is successful? But then as I became a senior product manager, I was leading bigger squads. I had bigger product service area. It became not just zero to three months, but like three to six months. And I was actually having some influence with what the executives were thinking. So I was actually like directing like what the future was because I was reporting back interesting data, reporting back interesting user insights. And so this started to inform the broader strategies. Then as I became a lead product manager, starting to actually manage people underneath me, it became, well, how do I develop my managerial skill set in addition to this, as well as my aperture? to be broader. So if I have senior product managers up until a six month aperture reporting to me, I need to start to think about the six to 12 months. And this was probably for me personally, one of the hardest parts because you go from needing to influence like designers and engineers at your level to influencing a whole bunch of cross-functional leaders above your level. And at first it's kind of scary. So like you're like a lead product manager, you know, in most companies, this is like L6. And then you're talking to like directors of design, directors of engineering, L7, L8, L9. Those become your aperture. So as lead product manager, then like I really needed, it took me a while actually to figure out how to influence these people even properly. Then from there, like going to group product manager and director. So at that level, managing multiple product areas and also becoming the head of product of one part, like one of the most five or six senior leaders reporting to the final head of product. So at that point, then you actually need to have a point of view on all the other product areas. So somehow figuring out 
How am I going to properly direct my team up until kind of like an 18 month aperture while also learning everybody else's? Because, you know, a lot of the evaluation of those roles is really based on like these leadership offsites. Like once you're in these roles, you're flying all the time, right? You're flying to New York in November and then SF in December and then Cancun in January. Like you're just constantly at these offsites, these like week long with like the CEO, head of product, other product leaders. And so at those places, we're generally talking about overall product strategy. So then I needed to like really get into that. And finally, VP of product. At that point, it's not just overall product strategy. It's also cross-functional. You need to be influencing how customer success is doing things, how marketing is doing things, how re revenue team is doing things, sales is doing things. So all of a the sudden then I needed to develop this new skill set and I needed to outsource even more to my directors and GPMs so that I could actually focus there. Yeah, Akash, I'm I'm a big fan of your uh, book, The Ultimate Guide to Getting a PM Job. So I felt that, you know, uh, there was a lot of advice on getting a PM job out there. But, you know, pandemic changed a lot of things. The uh, economy was down and I, I felt that your book came in the right time to capture some advice, which was, you know, relevant to that point of time. So uh, I did go through the uh, book and also I wanted to basically ask you like can you mention some of the key strategies that you mentioned in the book you know that could help anybody who's aspiring to become a product manager or grow as a product manager in his or her career yeah and the second version of that book is coming out in just a few days so i have like 10x oh, the quality okay. of that book so i'm so happy you liked the first version i have been working for like that's been like my extra late night project. After I do my normal work, I've been pulling up the second version of the book and I've been working on that. But if we think about the first version of the book, so let me just rewind a little bit. Yeah, so some of the key lessons that I would focus people on. One and Number one is like the theme of the book, which is your job search is sales. Um, number two is like how to really succeed in interviews. And then number three is like being focused over being broad. So like number one, let's talk about like the job search is sales. So like, basically my advice is like, stop dropping your resume, stop focusing on like a generic resume. Instead, what you should do is like, you should target a specific job. Then you should actually customize your LinkedIn for that specific job. Customize your resume for that job. Then you do some work. Like you actually like learn about that job a little bit. Then you reach out to people. And you reach out to them in ways you can actually reach them. Most people don't realize, but I show you in the book how to get anybody's email address. And so you email those people. And if you email them with work, like so even to this day, most of the people who read the book have a 60% reply rate. I personally have like a 70% reply rate. So people will reply if you actually do work as a product manager. And all of a sudden, like you've got an interview. So that's the number one strategy that I have. The number two strategy is like how to succeed in interviews. So basically like people want to take like so many interviews, but I'm saying like be really focused and prepare really hard for them. So I'm saying like come up with yourself, the list of like your top 10 weaknesses, come up with the list of the top 30 questions they're going to answer you and really practice how you're going to answer those top 30 questions so that those weaknesses become strengths. And then the final thing for me is like being really focused. So as you can see here, I've said like, be focused on the companies and jobs you're applying for, be focused on the number of interviews, and then also be focused and over outperform everybody else. So what you said is, you know, in pandemic, things change. And what changed is like a bunch of amazing product managers from Meta and from Google suddenly hit the market. 
And so these people are awesome, right? And so if you're competing with them, like how are you going to outperform? How are you going to show that you're better than them? What you're going to do is you're going to actually do more work than them. So what I started doing and what I recommend all these people do is they create an additional work product. Maybe you create a PRD, maybe you create a strategy document. Even after almost every interview, maybe you messed up a question. You then like send that to the interviewer. So you're doing so much more work than everybody else. They're like, wow, this guy just crazy loves our company. He's so involved in this job. I know that if he joins our company, he's going to be this over the top, just committed, right? And so that's a key way to differentiate. And that's what I try to espouse in the book. And and uh, if anybody wants to get that book, right, where can get, where can they get the book? Yeah, it's on Amazon. Um, and soon they're going to approve my second version and that'll be out there too. And also, uh, at least for the first version. So like the second version, actually, I'm not, I'm not going to make it free to all paid newsletter subscribers because it has so much exclusive content. So yeah, Amazon will be the way. <laughs> awesome. Okay. We'll add that in the description too. Um, um, on a side note, like uh, looking at the current trajectory, I mean, as you, as we all have been seeing, there's so much going on AI. Um, so what are your predictions for the like next big evolution in the product management? Okay, so we want to talk about evolutions, then it needs to be something big, it needs to be something that's going to change the future of product management, and it needs to be counter a trend that has been existing, right? So the trend I observed from 2012 to 2022 was that the product managers started rebelling against product managers, CEO of the product, right? Ben Horowitz, when he wrote that phrase, he actually wrote it in 1997. <laughs> Good product manager, bad product manager. From 1997 to 2012, people started to believe that phrase, right? 2012, people really turned against it. For 10 years, it became, hey, PM, they can't focus on output metrics. They can't focus on revenue. They can't focus on retention rate. They got to focus on their OKRs. They got to focus on their input metrics. They got to focus on um, the activation rate of their specific feature. They got to focus on, you know, these sort of input metrics of things that they can actually move. So this is the massive trend. What was causing this massive trend? Number one thing was low interest rates, right? Between that, in that period, we saw interest rates basically go to zero and then stay at zero. What this meant was that companies could fund long-term investments. And product is kind of the ultimate long-term investment. So you can focus on these input metrics and then you kind of believe like in the long run, you're going to get the output metrics you need to get. And so with low interest rates, you can make unlimited long-term investments. So you make a lot of investments like this. You have your teams focus on input metrics. Now, what happened, obviously, is that interest rates rose. Multiples for software companies come crashing down. The investment horizon suddenly shifts from like five-year payback period on product investment to like six months. So what's the big evolution? What's the big trend that I'm talking about? It's that product managers as general managers. Product managers taking up revenue targets, taking up profitability targets, taking up output metrics. And it might not always happen at the product manager, senior product manager level. You know, if you work at Walmart, if you work at Home Depot, if you work at a large company, this is going to happen for like your VP of product, of course, right? But that person, <laughs> if they aren't doing things right, they're just going to get fired very quickly. And so that's what I think is like the big trend, the big evolution is that the aperture for product management investments timelines have decreased 
product managers have to be able to show an impact to revenue and profit in a shorter timeline. And so they're starting to be evaluated more as general managers than just product managers moving input metrics. Yeah, also especially in this uncertain economy, it's, I think it's more important than ever. Yeah. Yeah, people need to chew more than they can. <laughs> a lot of times, more responsibility, a lot of more products in their portfolio. And I think you have an Amazon background. So you might have, like, I think Amazon was one of the early companies to, like, give their product managers these things. So I think they were a bit ahead of the curve there. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I think, uh, uh, I mean, obviously, it took uh, some time to be profitable as a company. But I felt like uh, from revenue standpoint, it's always been up. And it's been continuously growing. Awesome. Very cool. Cool. Uh, so Akash, to understand what your future aspirations are late, you know, I've been uh, as a product manager, uh, uh, went to the peak as a product manager, now as a content creator. What What are you excited about and what's your North Star and where you want to be? Maybe three, five, ten years down the line. Wow. <laughs> That's a great question. So where I'd like to be is just like making content for tens of thousands of paid newsletter subscribers. And so what I'm excited about is like some of the key jobs to be done that I personally think about are number one, like making it easier to succeed in your job without killing yourself. So many product managers are pulling crazy hours. And unfortunate reality in my past too is that I've seen a direct relationship with the number of hours you work and your success in this career. So it's just the, unfortunately how the rewards are paying off in product management. So I'm really thinking about this job to be done of when people subscribe, hopefully I'm kind of giving them like a shortcut, like some sort of like time savings, like, hey, I could have gone out and done this myself, but Akash has put all this together for me. This has saved me 10 hours or something like that. So that's one of the really important jobs to be done for me. The second is helping people excel and make more impact in their job. So in particular, like some sort of insight where, okay, I was, I was inspired by this example Akash shared. So we actually built this feature and that had huge impact and we crushed our OKRs. So that's the second thing that I'm very excited about. And when it comes tactically to like what those jobs to be done mean for like topics of content like i want to do way more like this is how you solve this problem and these are mistakes that real teams have made trying to solve that problem because i find that a lot of problems are kind of universal like a problem might be hey how do we get people to make more repeat purchases within a year so then we can break that down into like all the different product levers how different types of companies have done it and that's basically like unlimited content i could just write about that for my entire life so that's how I'm thinking about how I generate unlimited content forever. And then the other thing I'm interested in tactically, like content-wise, is making my content available to everyone. Like what I found is that not everyone reads. <laughs> For me as a writer, it's hard to admit, but some people listen, some people watch. And so I want to make sure that like I can have a massive impact, right? So to have that massive impact, I want to make sure that like the lessons I'm learning in the written form are also available. So from a content point of view, I want to start to do more in the podcasting space, more in the video space. So that's how I'm thinking about like tactically interesting content things. And then finally, like third element of your question, like just purely like product growth, like what am I like interested about and excited about? And I feel like 
and I know this is just like maybe self-serving, but I do feel like go-to-market functions are going to continue to get compressed. <laughs> and I just feel like a lot of that is going to be automated. It's going to be done by product. AI is going to take over. Like there's this really, really cool demo of uh, AI doing an SDR outbound sales call. Um, and, you know, obviously SDR outbound sales is really important. It generated 80% of Brex's revenue. It's like a $15 billion company. So it's like a very important thing, right? But I think that like product management, like generating innovative products, like that's not something I've seen AI that good at yet. Like it basically is derivative. Like if you've asked ChatGPT anything, like what the New York Times case showed too, it's just like, it's copying what's already out there in the internet. Maybe it's like slightly putting it together in new ways, but like truly original work, which is what most good product managers are doing, truly original product discovery is very hard to replace. So I'm actually super excited that like product-led growth is going to expand in B2C and B2B and that product managers are going to continue to succeed. And so that's what I'm particularly excited about. Awesome. And I always had a question, right? It's, it's very difficult to leave a paying job and go full-time, right? And do free freelance, right? And want to understand, like, what was your state of mind or, you know, uh, what was going through your mind when you decided to quit your job and move to content creation? Yeah. So for me in particular, like I knew that I was going to eventually quit to do full-time content creation. The problem was that Apollo was actually an awesome job. So like my scope was increasing. It was like the most senior I've been as a product leader. Apollo was growing really fast. We raised um, a fresh unicorn valuation while I was there. My teams were hitting their OKR. So a lot of good things are happening. I also liked the people I was working with. I was learning a lot from our CPO, Shake, from our CEO, Tim. So that was pretty awesome. But at the same time, I had to look at kind of just my balance in life. And I was essentially working kind of like two jobs where I would tend to work from Apollo from kind of like eight to eight. And then from like eight to two, I was working on this newsletter. And that was basically because I had already started the paid newsletter before I joined Apollo. So at that point, then I needed to support that paid newsletter. And so when I was looking at of those two jobs, you know, A, which has the highest upside potential? The newsletter has far higher potential than product management ever could. B, like what has better product market fit? Like, although I was doing pretty well in my job at Apollo, the other VP of product had been at Apollo for eight years. He knew sales tech and Apollo better than me. Like a lot of times when we would have product discussions, I would just think and I would say, yeah, what what Christian said. <laughs> so I also knew like his product market fit for being a VP of product at Apollo was still slightly better than mine. He had also been a salesperson before. So thinking about that was like a little bit of the thing where like as a content creator at the time, I think when I was making this decision, I was like the number one product content creator on LinkedIn and number one on X. So I like had these rankings behind me as well. It was going pretty fast. So then the final thing was like, thinking through like, what do I want to just be doing for like long term? Like, what do I want to wake up? What is my dream life? And so the ability to like not have meetings, to not have like, this is like one of the few things I have on my calendar. And I like totally messed it up and was like six minutes late because I'm not used to having anything on my calendar. Like just like an empty calendar. I'm just like deciding what I want to do with my life. So I think that that was super appealing to me. Uh, the last thing is like, just, you know, balance in my life and I have two kids in the house and I can just at 2 p.m. in the middle of the day I can go spend hours with them and then I can pick up in the evening that's not something you can do as a VP of product which like 
as a VBA product, I would get Slack messages at 10 p.m. that suddenly would just take over my day. And I'd like have to respond to them from 10 p.m. to midnight. So it's like, you know, you're working for someone else versus working for yourself. And so that final element of just having complete control, like determining my own fate, like even though my team's OKRs are going up 50% over goal, that doesn't mean my income is going up 50% over goal. But with the newsletter, actually, it is mean my income is. So those are kind of the elements that drove me to it. Yeah, more control, right? And autonomy, always better. And I'm sure a lot of viewers will be probably looking for uh, advice. So I'm just curious, like, reflect on your journey. Uh, what advice would you give, especially for um, your audience, to excel in product management? And I think you are probably more focused on the experienced product managers or current product managers. So I'm just curious. Yeah. So I guess I write like, you know, 6,000 words on this twice a week. So I write like, you know, four or 500,000 words on this, but how would I condense it down into like 30 seconds or a minute? You know, my number one thing I would identify like for product management is manage yourself. As I said, like this job, it can easily take over your whole life. So like some people, like it's, what was the stat by CNBC? 66% of product managers want to quit and find another job. That's an alarming statistic. So I would say that managing yourself so that you like your job, love your job even. And part of that might mean, you know, maybe you don't get promoted in one year and eight months. Maybe you get promoted in two year and four months, you know, taking some reasonable hits in your own career growth, even potentially in order to manage for the long run. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. This is like, I want my readers to like succeed in product management their whole career up until they're 60, 70. I was talking to someone yesterday. He told me he aged out of product management. He was 40 years old. So I don't want that to be the case. And so that's one thing I would suggest to everybody manage yourself. The second thing is, you know, continuous learning and improvement. I am a huge advocate of all of the learning resources out there. Courses like Reforge, GrowthX, Product Faculty, newsletters like Product Growth, Lenny's newsletter, communities and paid Twitter like Shreyas is paid Twitter. Basically everything that exists out there, I know that it seems like it could cost money, but I think the ROI is there. At least in my career, the ROI was there. A firm stock is up yeah. 400%, right? So all these things, like the potential earnings you can have as a product manager are very high. Let's say you spend $150 a year on a newsletter. Even if that 1% increases your likelihood of a better raise, that better raise could earn you four, five, six thousand dollars $6,000 a year. So I think yep. that that's a second area for you if you want to go into your product career. And the third was that very first point I talked about at the top, which was self-awareness. We all have weaknesses. And me nor any other product newsletter knows what your particular weakness is. And so you need to take what you're learning out there and then get information from people within your company about what your actual weaknesses are so you can address them. Awesome. Awesome, Akash. Yeah. Uh, thanks a lot for all that wisdom. You know, we went into a lot of details of product management, growing your newsletter and all. And, you know, it was a privilege to have you, have you on the pod. Of course. Thanks for having me. Yep. Thanks for your time, Akash. Uh, great meeting you.